and welcome to Gender Troubles. I'm Emma Austin. I'm Eve Aspenshade. And we majored in gender studies. So you don't have to. Um, we are on Twitter at Gender Troubles 1, and we are on Insta at gender.troubles.pod, and we have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash gender troubles. And someday, maybe, we'll have all of our social medias have the same name, but that probably won't happen. <laughs> Gender Troubles is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Harbinger brings you progressive podcasts from all across Canada. Um, you can find them at harbingermedianetwork.com. And I would definitely encourage you to, if you like our podcast and other people's podcasts on the network, to consider supporting them um, as like a monthly sustainer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a bit of an impromptu episode. Um, as most of you who are listening are probably aware um, the feminism community lost a big um, member this mm -hmm. week. Uh, Bell Hooks died. Um, and I think both Eva and I have um, a lot of, I don't know, history with reading Bell Hooks' work. Um, so we wanted to do a little episode on her. Yeah, to honor her. Um, and... <sighs> yeah, it's been <laughs> what yeah. a what a year and <laughs> just losing so many so many wonderful thinkers so early. Um yeah, Bell Hooks, she was 69, which is Yeah, she was young. Yeah, that's young. And so we wanted to create a little a little episode kind of mm -hmm. just talking about her, some of her work. Um and yeah, so for those who don't know, um, Bell Hooks is a feminist theorist, a black feminist, um, and she was born Gloria Jean Watkins in 1952. She grew up in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and went to segregated schools until college. She then attended Stanford for university in the early 70s. And in the late 70s, she began to publish poetry under the name Bell Hooks. And this is an audio format. So when we say bell hooks, you don't know, but we're saying it all lowercase. Um, mm -hmm. So bell hooks has always, um, since beginning to use her pen name, written her name completely lowercase. Um, and people have asked her about it throughout the years. And in an interview she gave in 2018, um, she said, and this is a quote, when the feminist movement was at its zenith in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a lot of moving away from the idea of the person. It was, let's talk about the ideas behind the work and the people matter less. It was a kind of gimmicky thing, but lots of feminist women were doing it. Many of us took the names of our female ancestors. Bell Hooks is my maternal great-grandmother to honor them and debunk the notion that we were these unique, exceptional women. We wanted to say, actually, we were the products of the women who'd gone before us. Hmm. And Hooks's first major work to be published, academic work, was in 1981, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism. And she had been working on it for many years before, starting when she was an undergrad at Stanford. And she published over 30 books, including children's books. Hmm. And some of her best-known works include The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love, Feminism is for Everybody, All About Love, New Visions, and Yearning, Race, Gender, and Cultural Politics. Yeah. So we wanted to, I uh, guess, talk a bit about when each of us first encountered her writing and what mm -hmm. the text was. So we have some some quotes and um, some some works that I guess m mean a lot to us. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I guess my first time reading Bell Hooks was in first year university. I was just a little undergraduate baby. And I was <laughs> like, I'm going to take a women's studies class. I wasn't even like majoring in women's studies. Um, and I started reading Theory as Liberatory Practice and Engaged Pedagogy. And I feel like both those texts really like served as inspiration to make this podcast as well for me, just because they're talking a lot about like the inaccessibility of education, of post-secondary education specifically, and of academia and how like when you're talking about things like gender and sexuality and race and disability and stuff, it should be accessible to the masses and not just like a select group of white elites. Completely. Um, so like, yeah, I feel like Bell Hooks really like wrote the the groundwork for what this like podcast is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Theory as Liberatory Practice is a 1991 essay by Hooks about how theory can be a great way to make sense of the world and understand your own subjectivity and also about how the production of theory is often inaccessible and thus some subjectivities are erased from the production of theory, um, such as Black women's experience. So this is just um, a quote from that book. I did not feel truly connected to these strange people, to these familial folks who could not only fail to grasp my worldview, but who just simply did not want to hear it. As a child, I didn't know where I had come from, and when I was not desperately seeking to belong to this family community that never seemed to really accept or want me, I was desperately trying to discover the place of my belonging. I was desperately trying to find my way home. How I envied Dorothy on her journey in The Wizard of Oz, that she could travel to her worst fears and nightmares only to find at the end that there is no place like home. Living in a childhood without a sense of home, I found a place of sanctuary in theorizing, in making sense out of what was happening. I found a place where I could imagine possible futures, a place where life could be lived differently. This lived experience of critical thinking, of reflection and analysis became a place where I worked at explaining the hurt and making it go away. Fundamentally, I learned from this experience that theory could be a healing place. Mm. And yeah, I feel like, um, like reading her work and like my first year of university and like discovering like, I don't know, like, uh, feminist theory, like I, I, yeah, I just really, um, I guess that quote really resonates with me. It's just like understanding like things that have happened to me in my life or struggles I've faced and like connecting them to like a theory or an idea of about like the oppression of, of, you know, women it's a beautiful quote and it just illustrates too like what a what a beautiful writer she was too oh yeah not all academics are are, write beautifully or they lean too heavily on just you know making beautiful prose and not really kind of having um you know substance behind it and Mm -hmm. Mel Hooks was just this fantastic example of someone who wrote beautifully and was able to convey complex emotions and feelings in a way that you could understand, unlike someone, say, like, Judith Butler. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Judith. No offense, Judith. <laughs> She's as inaccessible as they come. Yeah. Um, no, for sure. And I think that's why, like, maybe... I mean, you can definitely tell, first of all, that she was like a poet, like she mm-hmm. does just like write so beautifully. Um, and then also why her, her her work has like really transcended the academy mm-hmm. and like, you know, become so prolific is that like pretty like you don't have to have like an academic bi- background to like read and understand what she's saying. And I think she was doing that really intentionally. But it was also like she also contributed really important ideas to the world of theory. Like mm-hmm. she's the one that that first came up with the idea of like she first coined the term the 
what uh white supremacist capitalist patriarchy um and that was like i think really important for it became a really important term when when talking about like intersectional feminism and what we were talking about when we were talking about white supremacy or when we were talking about capitalism like these systems of intertwining oppression Mm -hmm. um so yeah, she she was she could so seamlessly do both at the same time, like tell a really beautiful story about her own life and also like contribute so so much to to an academic or a theory or whatever. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. I first encountered bell hooks um from the tumblr account saved by the bell hooks which is a very you could tell like i came of age around like 2015 (laughs) um and saved by the bell hooks is um artist liz larrabee she combined stills from the tv show saved by the bell of which i never saw um Mm -hmm. as a millennial gen z cusp person and then on top of it instead of kind of like closed captioning put bell hook quotes that kind of related to what was happening in the image um and so i'll we'll link some in the show notes and just here's two examples that i kind of pulled one Mm -hmm. where you have um two teenage girls at a movie theater a black woman and and a white woman and the white woman is kind of like saying something that seems annoying and the black woman's kind of rolling her eyes and then the caption is black women felt they were asked to choose between a black movement that primarily served the interest of black male patriarchs and a women's movement which primarily served the interest of racist white women Hmm. and another one that i remember very vividly is uh, a kind of a teenage boy and a teenage girl like teenage boy is smiling and kind of like pinching the girl's cheeks in a kind of like condescending paternalistic way and the caption is the fear of being alone or being unloved has caused women of all races to passively accept sexism and sexist oppression (laughs) and it is kind of i i you could say it's a little cringy that (laughs) i i came into contact with black feminism through tumblr just i think it also illustrates how much of a white feminist lens that I had as you know a teenager um but also there is something that's really wonderful and fitting of having an author who is known for making her work like digestible and accessible in this ultra accessible shareable format um and even separated from the text that these quotes come from the idea is still conveyed yeah um which is wonderful you know you don't need to read necessarily the entire text of a bell hooks text to understand you know the things she's trying to convey Mm -hmm. and then once i got to university in first year i spent a lot of time reading ain't i a woman and her essay eating the other um and i really connected in first year with the way that hooks like drew from so many different types of knowledge production and different sources um in eating the other which examines how uh, it's an essay that examines how like non-white people cultures and themselves are kind of consumed by white folks mm-hmm. um and she starts the essay by talking about this like anecdotal story of when she was walking down a street in new haven and overheard a conversation of like these white bros talking about like how they wanted to sleep with women of all races and kind of like ranking like the value of sleeping with these women from different races, <laughs> which is just like, Oh God. Yeah. Um, 
And then she goes from that to a conversation of like imperialist nostalgia, which is much more of like an academic term of like looking at how, you know, white people kind of feel this nostalgia for these things that are tied to kind of, you know, imperialism at its height. Yeah. Um, a great example of that is like, you know, like the people who like romanticize like the antebellum South. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to like talking about like Foucault and his writing on like how <laughs> he felt pleasure or didn't feel pleasure. And then she goes and talks about John Waters hairspray. And then she talks about some random Sandra Bernhardt movie that I looked <laughs> up on YouTube and looked scary and did not actually want to, you know, interact with. But like all of those different sources were kind of treated with the same level of respect and legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I think is really notable about Bell Hooks is she, she, her research and what she chose to study and how she chose to, you know, weave these more theoretical ideas, she really pulled kind of from all over. So she's written about Beyonce, she's written, written about Spike Lee, she's write, written about Little Kim, and then she's also written about, you know, in conversation with much more kind of academic texts. And mm-hmm. there was no... It, it one was not treated as like better or worse than the other and one type of knowledge wasn't you know treated with this reverence that we typically have for example with like theory from the academy as opposed to you know a rap song like everything could be studied to kind of explain who we are as people and how we move through the world absolutely um And I have a quote that I really love from Eating the Other, Mm -hmm. um, where she says, the desire to make contact with those bodies deemed other, with no apparent will to dominate, assuages the guilt of the past, even takes the form of a defiant gesture where one denies accountability and historical connection. Most importantly, it establishes a contemporary narrative where the suffering imposed by structures of domination on those designated as other is deflected by an emphasis on seducing and longing where the desire is not to make over the other in one's image, but to become the other. And what Mm. she's talking about there is just how white people in white culture appropriate and consume aspects of non-white cultures, especially black culture. but and how like the whole cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation like this discussion Mm -hmm. she's talking about way before you know we had american apparel and urban outfitters like selling racist you know halloween costumes or whatever like yeah how basically saying like reading it being like you are not immune from racism and you are not immune from imperialist domination if you are, you know, consuming aspects of non-white culture. Like that doesn't make you less racist or like better in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I've never read that one, but I would really like to. It's really beautiful and makes me think so much just, you know, it's one of these things where it came out, you know, 20 years ago, more than that, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, maybe. And you're still like, wow, this is incredibly relevant. (laughs) And And it looks too at how, it's really hard for white people to escape these these trends of just like consumption and mm-hmm. and you know how she's not trying to you know kind of negate individual responsibility when it comes to being a, a good non-racist person um but is also examining just how larger social structures kind of 
push white people towards like continuing this kind of imperialist consumption over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So I was, we were going to go into some, some favorite quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I was just going to go through a couple that I guess meant a lot to me. Um, that hopefully you, if you haven't, you know, read a lot of bell hooks and you're listening to this, it, um, will also be interesting to you. Uh, so this one's from the will to change men, masculinity, and love. Um, this is on page 66. So this is a book by hooks that focuses on the effects of patriarchy on men and toxic masculinity and how and why this is so ingrained and the possibility of change and the possibilities men have to love and be emotional. Mm. Um, so the quote is to indoctrinate boys into the rules of patriarchy. We force them to feel pain and to deny their feelings. The first act of violence that patriarchy demands of males is not violence toward women. Instead, patriarchy demands of all males that they engage in acts of psychic self-mutilation, that they kill off the emotional parts of themselves. If an individual is not successful in emotionally crippling himself, he can count on patriarchal men to enact rituals of power that will assault his self-esteem. So yeah, I think this was just like super important for me because I think in my my early days of, of my feminist journey, I was very into like the, uh, I don't just like the, this is like what something that men do to women. And like, I was seeing it really in like black and white in a very like binary and like not really understanding like the greater forces of patriarchy, Mm. but just like, it was more of like a, like just this kind of like, I hate men sort of, <laughs> you know, um, like a very like baseline feminism, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and that's like, it's not helpful and it's not true. Like I love the men in my life. Um, and I think this kind of helped me understand, like, or understand like the trauma that I had faced or, mm. and understand that like, it's not, that yeah, that men are also victims of patriarchy in this different way. And like, it's, it's like a, a cycle, um, that, you know, we don't just have like these baby boys that are just like born to whatever, um, to be, you know, sexist, but they, they kind of learn this by, by crippling that emotional part of themselves, mm-hmm. like, like Bell Hooks said. And, um, yeah, it's a really heavy quote and I guess just kind of, help me understand my worldview a bit better um yeah that it makes me think of um kind of bell hooks one sentence definition of feminism Mm. where she says feminism is the struggle to end sexist oppression yeah and that's one of the i think most concise and yet also inclusive definitions of feminism Mm -hmm. um and ties into like her writing about masculinity and about patriarchy and how we are all victims of patriarchy in these ways um yeah which yeah again just just we talk a lot about work or or authors being accessible or not being accessible um and Sometimes it can seem like just kind of another buzzword. I know I, I will talk about it a lot. And accessibility in general, I think, is being sometimes loses what it's trying to convey. But this mm-hmm. is a perfect example of, you know, she wrote a book called Feminism is for Everybody. And that sounds very like, oh, happy, rainbow, shiny. But it's true. And is kind of, yeah. again, the root of what she was trying to convey 
through her life and through her work is, you know, making feminism accessible also just means not just people will be able to read her work and understand it, but people will be able to read her work and see themselves and also see people not like them in different lights and feel motivated to try to end patriarchal oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, at the, I feel like this is like the feminism is like a, it's like any kind of like grassroots fight. It's like, it takes everyone. Like Mm -hmm. you're not just gonna, it it takes like men too, like learning about this stuff and like understanding it and understanding how it's affected them personally in order to change. So yeah. Yeah. uh, She's like the opposite of gatekeeping. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Okay. And then I was going to read a little bit from Is Paris Burning, mm-hmm. which is, uh, so this is, uh, this, so this is her critique of the film Paris is Burning uh, from her 1992 book of essays, Black Looks. Uh, so yeah, the review is called Is Paris Burning? Mm-hmm. Quote, when I first heard that there was this new documentary film about black gay men, drag queens, and drag balls, I was fascinated by the title. It evoked images of the real Paris on fire, of the death and destruction of a dominating white Western civilization and culture, an end to oppressive Eurocentrism and white supremacy. This fantasy not only gave me a sustained sense of pleasure, it stood between me and the unlikely reality that a young white filmmaker offering a progressive vision of of blackness from the standpoint of whiteness would receive the positive press according recorded Livingston in her film. Mm. Watching Paris is Burning, I began to think that the many yuppie-looking, straight-acting, pushy, predominantly white folks in the audience were there because the film in no way interrogates whiteness. These folks Mm. left the film saying it was amazing, marvelous, incredibly funny, worthy of statements like, didn't you just love it? And no, I didn't just love it. For in many ways, the film was a graphic documentary portrait of the way in which colonized black people, in this case, black gay brothers, some of whom were drag queens, worship at the throne of whiteness, even when such worship demands that we live in perpetual self-hate, steal, lie, go hungry, and even die in its pursuit. The we evoked here is all of us, black people slash people of color, who are daily bombarded by a powerful colonizing whiteness that seduces us away from ourselves and negates that there is beauty to be found in any form of blackness that is non-imitation of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think like, I think this quote really, I guess taught me to be a bit more critical, not only just of like images and media, but like who's making the media. Like, I feel like that really, um, was maybe not something that was always on my radar before. Um, but yeah, so Jenny Livingston, who's like this white woman, made this documentary called Paris is Burning about like um, like drag life in New York in the 80s, I think, the mm-hmm. 80s and ni- yeah, 90s. Um, and yeah, Hooks found that it like w- was really created through the lens of whiteness. And who profited, like literally, like, you know, so much of... The aftermath of Paris's burning is you had this young white documentary filmmaker who received, you know, social and literal mm-hmm. capital. And then you had, you know, the subjects of her documentary who did not receive any sort of, you know, significant compensation or kind of were uplifted from their circumstances around poverty. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, isn't that, just you know so often the case with with art and with documentary film it's like 
the filmmaker is celebrated while like the subject is really what made the documentary so so beautiful or like the piece of art what what the subject is what makes it so beautiful but you know mm-hmm. our our um kind of like our culture tends to celebrate the white people creating versus like the black people or the people of color that are like centered within the art mm-hmm. completely um, yeah so I also had this video critique of Kids by Larry Clark. Um, It's just a minute and a half. If you fast forward to 637, you can listen. It's frightening to me now when people want to behave as though certain images don't mean anything. I thought of this when I saw Larry Clark's Kids. And I went back like in circles of progressive white friends and I said, oh, God, you know, the racial politics in terms of representation in this film really suck. And they really wanted to say it didn't matter. It didn't mean anything. And I was like, give me a fucking break. I mean, like, we know why the person who's brutally bashed to death is a dark-skinned black man. It's not, it's not, it's, it's crucial that he's a dark-skinned black man because, in fact, people's antipathy to dark-skinned black men is actually much greater than their antipathy to black men in some kind of general way. I feel that it's frightening that as mass media uses more certain kinds of representations for specific impact and effect, we're also being told that these images are not really that important. Wow. Yeah. That's, I've, I've never seen kids, so I don't know exactly okay. what's going yeah. on in the scene and why they're. Yeah. I saw kids when I was like a teenager and it like, I feel like a lot has come out like now about um, the making of that film and it's sort of ethical issues. They were using like super young actors mm. and those, uh, there was a lot of trauma and not being emotionally prepared to deal with the subject matter. I think mm. that they were dealing with and stuff. Um, but yeah. So what do you, what do you think of what, what she said? It's just spot on. Mm-hmm. Like even as someone who has not seen the film, I, I understand what, she, what she's saying. And just, I think, you know, she's just really showing how desensitized we have become towards violence against black people. And Mm-hmm. you know again you're looking you're you know in the year of 2021 being like wow yes this is incredibly relevant still the, this is something that's being talked about a lot more but like the sort of like the continuous images of like black people suffering mm-hmm. and black people dying and and hurting and being in pain and um like that it that it that permeates our our pop culture and in movies and you know um that we need more stories of of like black people and happiness and Mm -hmm. love and family and like that these I think what yeah what I really got from what she was saying is that like these images are powerful and they mean something and they permeate our culture when we see like you know like what she is talking about is like a dark-skinned black man being beaten to death Mm -hmm. by by a group of mostly white teenagers um that like that that stays in our cultural consciousness um and like why are those bodies the ones that are disposable or that we can watch be like brutalized you know um yeah and i mean i was i'm gonna start sounding like a broken record but like you know to be able to watch a indie movie and and be able to have this kind of critical media criticism lens yeah so 
I guess I wanted to end with a quote um, from uh, Tao Lee Joff in her piece in Vulture, which is called To Read Bell Hooks Was to Love Her. Mm. And um, I also think, obviously, us as two white feminists, like there, there's only our our connection to bell hooks and what we can say about her is limited in ways um definitely and so we're going to include in the show notes a bunch of people writing about bell hooks black women specifically women of color people of color and their you know their connection to bell hooks how they're how they're mourning her death and celebrating her life Mm -hmm. um and so here is a quote from tally joff where she says bell hooks taught the world two things how to critique and how to love. Perhaps the two lessons were both sides of the same coin. To read Bell Hooks is to become initiated into the power and inclusiveness of Black feminism, whether you are a Black woman or not. With her wide array of essays of cultural criticism from the 1980s and 90s, Hooks dared to love Blackness and criticize the patriarchy out loud. She was generous and attentive in her analysis of pop culture as a self-proclaimed bad girl. Sadly, the announcement of her death this week at 69 adds to a too long list of Black thinkers, artists, and public figures gone too soon. While many of us feel heavy with grief at the loss of Hooks and her contributions to arts, letters, and ideas, we are also voraciously reading and rereading, both in mourning and in celebration of her impact as a critical theorist, a professor, a poet, a lover, and a thinker. Oh, that's beautiful. And one great resource I would encourage those who wish to read or reread Bell's Hoax work is um, the website uh, billfineslibrary.com, which is a free online library of Black women's writing um, where you can read PDFs of whole books. Um, And if you do go there, I'd also encourage you to consider donating to the website as well. It's a really beautiful, wonderful resource um, specifically around, you know, the work of Black women. Um, and yeah, so I, I know I personally have been reading and rereading Bell Hooks and, and I think that this quote that I just read kind of shows to how one of the ways we can really honor her is by revisiting her work. I don't know, re- revisiting her work just for like making this podcast and kind of re- like revisiting my favorite quotes and stuff, um, has been a real has been a real treat yeah so yeah thank you bell thank you for everything yeah. you did we love you and pause this and go read some of her work yeah all right we'll see you next time see you next time <laughs>